Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where every week we provide a fresh perspective on the events and technology driving the energy transition. I'm Peter White, CEO of Rethink. Usually I'm joined by our analysts. This week, Harry Morgan, uh, a hydrogen wind specialist, is coming to us from uh, um, the south, southern parts of the, of, of the USA. Harry, are you there? Happy to say, yeah. Still and and Andres Wontanar, our solar specialist, um, you know, as he normally sits in uh, in darkest Wales. Hello. And and our publisher Simon Thompson. Hello. Right on the show today, we thought we'd be discussing what SoCal Gas was doing, uh, building a, a bidding to build a huge hydrogen hub in California, and we will get round to that if we can. Uh, we were then going to have a little discussion about the, the role Canada m- might play uh, in helping um, the US to get to zero emissions if it can ever go, get over its addiction to fossil fuels. But then Russia women invaded Ukraine. We want to perhaps just touch on the, um, the energy implications of that rather than any other political ramifications. And last week, Harry... Uh, on this week, Harry's written a piece on it. So, Harry, um, as, as we understand it here, there haven't been much in the way of sanctions imposed on Russia um, over the course of the day. Um, the SWIFT network is still available to Russia to transact uh, international payments. Um, what, what do you think? I mean, can we survive if we do that? Can Europe? Uh, I'm sure America can, but can Europe survive it if Russia cuts us off from both gas and oil immediately? What do you think? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think obviously it's a very, very rapidly moving situation. The sanctions imposed by the EU so far have been probably the harshest in, in its history, but and that, but that's really been focused on Russia's finance system, which is basically been frozen you know, in sort of the global landscape. Um, they've really held back in terms of the sanctions from hitting the oil and gas sector. Yeah, as you said, they've not hit the, the SWIFT bank transfer system and there's not been any direct sanctions on, on Vladimir Putin himself. Although I imagine to some extent, all three of those are being held in their pockets, really, um, from the European perspective. Yeah, and, and as, we, as we're talking about it from the energy perspective, the key point to consider is how dependent Europe is on... On Russian oil and gas, Europe, as it stands, relies on Russia for 41% of its gas, 26% of its oil. And obviously, that, while that's still flowing at the moment, there really isn't any, any reason to think that if Europe applies sanctions on Russia's energy sector, that it won't suddenly just turn off the tap. And that okay. is then... Let's, let's just go through that. What happens if they turn off the tap? What are the, um, what are the leaks coming out of various Western European governments... Um, for what they're planning is, if the tap is turned off. So uh, Ursula von der Leyen of the EU has been very firm on it so far. She said that what we're, what we're doing now is we're already seeking uh, the liquefied natural gas resources from more reliable suppliers, she said. So they're looking to really shore up uh, su- uh, supplies from Norway, Japan, Qatar and the US for increased uh, natural gas system, uh, si- uh, shipments. Um, obviously, those take... A little bit of time to come in, so I imagine that those shipments probably have already been ordered. Now, how many how many ships are currently on? I mean, do we know off the top of our heads how many LNG ships are out of port uh, on the way to deliver, and how much they can be diverted? 
I'm not sure on the exact figure. I know that Japan has promised to send um, a couple of ships per week, although certainly from Japan's perspective as not a massive producer of uh, natural gas. In fact, I'm not sure they produce any. Um, that's going to be have a fairly limited impact on European gas supply. I think the real key players here are those uh, in Norway, the Middle East and the US. Obviously, it will inflate, inflate the, uh, the price we're paying for that slightly. But in terms of, sort of the long term security of that power, it's it's there haven't been any sanctions imposed on the energy sector and that we are making these additional orders. That means that while we saw oil and gas prices rise very rapidly um, a couple of days ago, they have sort of slept, uh, they have taken a bit of a pause on that on that rise. Okay, so I mean, I think oil traders and gas traders are going to um, be the experts on this. I mean, it's going to they, they, they're going to trade with or without panic, you know, with or without some insight given to them by um, um, by people who are shipping LNG around the planet. It's interesting that SWIFT, I mean, SWIFT's a global institution. I, I believe there's about 100 and, you know, 60, 180 banks in SWIFT. And I believe that, you know, it votes with an equal vote of all its members. Although I suspect that the USA might have a casting vote lurking in there somewhere. Um, so, if, if SWIFT is being held back, is this in the gift of politicians to tell SWIFT to cut off um, Russia from all international finance, or is it only in the gift of governments, do you think? Anyone got a view? Um, well, firstly, the Germans and the Italians don't want it to happen, and the Ukrainian government has been complaining that the Europeans are still opposing uh, SWIFT sanctions. And I, I also think that the, the thing is, if you sanction the the transaction system for gas, for Russian gas, well, the Russian gas is still there. People still want to buy it in this climate and it will just get replaced. Uh, there's already this Chinese infrastructure uh, called KIPS or something, starts with a C, which could eventually be scaled up. And of course, the other thing is, do you need money from people buying a gas more or do you need you know, actually electricity more? It would be kind of sanctioning ourselves in the in the immediate term. Uh, I don't... I, Personally, I think this swift sanctions idea is, is not practical. Um, well, that's an interesting view from someone so young who hasn't been around in uh, watching global politics, um, perhaps as quite as well as some of the other uh, ones of us. But, I mean, the truth is that swift action not, is the only way. How long is it going to take to invade, to, to take Kiev? It, you know, it's just going to be a few days, isn't it? It could be as many as a few weeks to, to like really wrap up the war. I mean, it even, I was looking this up, it, it even took the Americans several weeks to get into Baghdad in Iraq. Yeah, but, and that war between it, Azerbaijan and Armenia took several weeks, I think, before it really swung in one day. When you look at the amount of damage that uh, Russia can cause in that time, it could have um, no infrastructure left. It could, could target all of its own electricity uh, utilities and gas utilities. It could target the... Uh, the pipeline that runs uh, out of Ukraine. Um, and that, that's just a few shots. I mean, that just doesn't take very long to do at all. Is, is, um, is, Putin's, on, 600, is, is Putin's $600 billion wealth fund uh, significant in this? His personal wealth fund? No, it's a sovereign wealth fund of, of Russia. Is six hundred. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Quite so. Yeah. So where that's that's held all over the world, and he can be denied access to it. So I mean, I, I think uh, from our naive energy point of view, 
Um, we're not experts in, 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 in geopolitics, but it looks it looks like Putin at some stage has to kiss and make up in order to get his hands on that kind of money again. So, I mean, if that's out of the country, um, that that could just be forfeit. And and if so, he expects to stretch the tolerance of all the other countries, but not break it, and to be able to get back in their good books. It seems to me like. Um, you know, it's always a war of nerves. You know, if we're if we're really forceful and drop the sanctions straight away, uh, it might change his mind. He might do less damage. Um, we're worried that if you drop the sanctions and you've got no more weapons, you've got to go to war, and that might make Western politicians really, really, really nervous. So, I mean, that's in a nutshell their decision. It's not really about the energy industry. It's about um, so so. Assuming, Harry, that we can't really make up the shortfall because there just isn't enough gas in the world, and, and, and as Andre says, they can just ship more of it to China, uh, and China could be accepting of it, and China could be um, churlish and difficult and not, not you know, have Ukraine's back at all and say it's Russia's, Russia's business. So the issue is what happens to our economy? The Western European economies, you know, America makes out like a bandit if it ships all its LNG here and charges an extra 40% for it. So it's, it's the Western European economies that will suffer. So it's, that's why they're the ones saying don't cut off SWIFT. It's, it's, um, they're going for appeasement and let, letting Ukraine um, fall. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, and so, to some extent that's, that's true. And especially if you're looking at, and as, Andrew said earlier, Germany uh, in particular is can be reliant on Russia for as much as two thirds of its natural gas. So, and that's largely as well for for Germany to to fuel its export business for electricity. So, for Germany, it's a sub, it's a, suddenly a massive hit on this economy. Obviously, the, the first thing that goes is going to be those those exports of electricity to other countries. Uh, the the price of electricity in those other countries will then continue to rise as it has been for the past six months, and it's just another impact on inflation. I mean, that's that's something that we'll see then put onto European goods and it will affect the worldwide economy. And I think that at this point, that's why we're holding off on the on the direct sanctions on the energy sector. And I think there will be a lot done to try and prevent those from being enforced. I think one really interesting piece of this puzzle is Nord Stream 2. Obviously, Germany has um, halted that project and, and said that they're obviously not going to consider giving it any operational approval uh, in, as things stand at the moment, but they haven't, as uh, as we talked about before the podcast, said that they're going to rule the project entirely. Obviously, the pipeline's been laid. Is there ready? Is there ready to to pump fifty five billion cubic meters of gas from Russia to Germany every year? So it's going to be a very interesting dynamic to see whether or not Europe tries to develop an infrastructure around avoiding that pipeline being used um, and securing uh, trade deals from other countries, securing their own renewable energy sources, or whether or not it's going to sort of keep that until uh, the general public have forgotten about the war in Ukraine, um, which could be any given amount of time, given how quickly people forget other things in politics and whether or not that pipeline just suddenly is just sneaked back online. Well, I mean, if um, if that happens, the relations between um, uh, Germany and the US are going to be pretty soured. The everyone's going to come out of the woodwork and tell. Uh, every politician that you must um, drain the North Sea of every bit of gas and oil there is and keep it 
not, uh, not to be traded, but impose new rules which say it's got to be delivered to European countries' destinations. And you, you, after the Ukraine, why would Russia stop there? Well, might as well carry on right, right through Romania, uh, off to Greece, then to Italy. Um, well, well, I mean, Russia it has something to work with in Ukraine. It has people who speak Russia living in in it. Uh, you know, I think I think they're not going to take all of Ukraine. We don't want to get too much into the politics. I think maybe they'll they want to put a different regime in in power in Western Ukraine, and I think in Eastern Ukraine. They want to hold referendums that will then vote to join Russia, including the coastline. Um, yes, yeah, so, so going beyond that, I mean, there, there's Russians in Lithuania. There are places you can go into. I think they they might be taking over Moldova as well or a coup. But you know, I, I was very surprised by this invasion because Russia's intervened in in Syria, Azerbaijan, Armenia, um, but they've always been very cautious. I mean, look at the Kazakhstan intervention just a few months ago. That was over in four days. Anyway, I'm getting totally off topic on yeah, yeah, no, no, politics. It's interesting because it's interesting. Hmm. It's not what we but do for a living. I do, have a, I do have a question about the gas. I mean, it looks to me like we cannot really sanction Russia because we would be the ones sanctioning ourselves because we are the ones using the gas. And, and so the, really the only way we can sanction Russia which is kind of absolutely certain, um, just as certain as it is that Schultz has completely refused to actually cancel Nord Stream 2. I mean, people were pressuring him, apparently, the Americans. They were saying, we weeks ago, they were saying, if Russia invades Ukraine, we want you to commit now to say that you will cancel it if Russia invades. And he the, refused. The, interesting thing, the mm-hmm. interesting thing with Nord Stream 2 in this context is that it's something that the US has been called, has, was, firstly, the US was against it from the start, um, hmm. And and the US has been pretty self-interested in terms of Nord Stream 2. Obviously, the US doesn't want to see more gas from Russia going into Europe. We want to see more gas from going from America into Europe, especially when we know that gas realistically has limited numbers of years left uh, in operation. And sort of certainly by twenty the mid-2030s, uh, mid it will be really in the minority in the energy mix. I, I think that's the question we should be asking, uh, if, I, if you don't mind me interrupting too much. Um, like, how much is this going to accel- accelerate Europe's abandonment of gas, decommissioning of gas? Because it must be at least five years faster now, surely. Uh, I think massively. Or five years slower. Or five years slower. Look, politicians release the funds to do these things with renewables. If they're saying the last thing thing we were scared of was Russia, let's first, before we do renewables, establish energy security from our own sources. They could spend a ton of money chasing um, um, North Sea gas again. I think, I, I think that's true. I think that we've got to look at the countries where they will be chasing North, uh, North Sea gas. And realistically, that's largely actually the UK. I th- and I don't believe that that will be the UK's response to this. Obviously, they'll try to do that. But I think the UK's government some, what will be held to account for that. I think generally, we'll see a, a big boost, especially if energy prices rise, we'll see a big boost in um, schemes for rooftop solar, we'll see a big boost in scheme for local wind uh, in terms of community-based onshore wind, and I think we'll see a lot of boost for offshore wind while we have sort of short-term natural gas supply contracts from the Middle East and the US. I think one one thing, and this is was sort of the crux of the argument in the story that we wrote this week, was that it will be interesting to see whether or not this shifts the West's mindset on energy security because obviously we've got a huge security on Russian oil and gas at the moment, and we've seen what the consequences of that are. But we're also building a massive, massive dependency on supply chain 
reliance on China for clean energy commodities. And that's something that, like oil and gas, is something that we could, as a as a Western economy, broadly speaking, address by creating our, our own production facilities or our own oil and gas facilities. But currently, we're not doing that. We are letting China as a country really dominate the marketplace. So especially from a US perspective, uh, it'll be interesting to see whether or not the the current situation with Russia will make them rethink how much they're um, investing in securing lithium supply, nickel supply, cobalt supply, battery manufacturing facilities, EV manufacturing facilities. So can we actually go through all of these supply chains and say how much is controlled by China? Because I know for solar, it's something like 60% in China, another 20% from Chinese companies in Indochina, maybe a bit more. Uh, Batteries, it's similarly Chinese dominated as well, isn't it? So, yeah, I mean, if you're looking at things like the cathodes, you've got 41% dominated by China, 71% of the anodes. Um, in terms of lithium, it's 60% of the world supply. For cobalt, it's 70%. If you're looking at the pipeline of major battery factories in the world, there's two, around two, sort of 250 in development worldwide. 156 of those are in China that are planned or under construction. In the US, it's just 12. So it's, it's a huge dominance by China in that industry. Um, and again, if, you, if you're trying to build out a renewable energy economy in 10 years time and China suddenly wants to shut off the tap of supply of, of lithium, then again, you'll see this, this massive price spike in the price of batteries in, in the US and in Europe. So, so exactly the same thing can be used when, when China decides to invade Taiwan. It also gives them some practice. You know, that's what, what Russia does. If that works for them, then it will work for us. And, and we can cut the rest of the world off renewables. Now, renewables, the cobalt and the lithium and, and all those other things do not originate in China. They, they, they have it in their supply chain. It goes via China to go to the yes. market because it's in the supply chain. So that can be rerouted relatively quickly. And, and also, that would leave China not, not growing. In China, in China, lack of growth is an anathema. They, they wouldn't. They wouldn't allow that to happen in Russia. And what Andreas is forgetting is that without the money to buy the essential things which Russia needs that comes from oil, Russia's economy goes to a standstill in weeks. That 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 had this that swift cut off immediately. Yeah, we might well have to have the the gas pipelines uh, cut off immediately. And we may not be able to heat our homes originally, but in in Russia may not be able to feed its people. I mean, it's it, it's it... well. As far as food is concerned, I think they've actually become a food exporter because the, the thing with the is with the sanctions is we've been sanctioning them since at least 2014, and, and they've been adjusting to it. Yeah, that's true. And they haven't done anything. Yeah, they haven't felt the need. I mean, it has impinged on the quality of life in Russia, but. Yeah, and because they control the media, um, the, the Russians won't Yeah, I mean, Russia is somewhat resilient to these sort of economic impacts. I mean, the country lost, I think it's something like $39 billion on the first day of the invasion loans in terms of its financial assets. But I think in terms of how it's set up, in terms of its reserves, and in terms of its society, it probably is ready to to weather sort of two, three weeks of, of um, US and, and European sanctions. So yeah. it will be very interesting to see whether or not the sanctions are intensified to, to decrease that resilience to them. Okay, we, the one thing we do know is that Russia can't live without the money for oil 
for years. The Europe can't live without Russian gas for years. A resolution has to be, you know, will be found by politicians, um, regardless of what anyone thinks of it. Let's just move on a little bit. Um, we're not able to solve this problem. Um, South California Gas is planning a huge hydrogen hub, Harry, in California. What's triggered that? And uh, how many other hubs will there be? So, yeah, this all goes back to President Biden's infrastructure bill, um, which was announced back in August, of which he dedicated, I think it was something, I think it was something like $9.5 billion he allocated to a national hydrogen strategy, of which the majority of that was dedicated to creating four hydrogen hubs, um, one of which was to be green, one was to be blue, one was uh, to be pink, and then one was to be whichever one, probably another green one. This week, we've really seen the first sort of acceleration in who's bidding for those projects. So Southern California Gas unveiled a plan for a 20 gigawatt hydrogen production capacity, uh, hydrogen production project in the Los Angeles Basin. Uh, so it's going to be called the Angeles Link Project, 10 to, 10 to 20 gigawatts of electrolysis powered by 25 to 35 gigawatts of wind and solar, which is a huge amount of capacity. I mean, the, the state currently only has around 22 gigawatts of utility scale renewables. Um, so we'd have to do a massive amount of development to get that in place, or it would have to seek uh, other capacity from neighbouring uh, states, which I imagine would be the case in a project of this scale, especially given California's fairly high population density, especially towards the coast. The interesting thing to here is that uh, Southern California Gas has announced that it's developing a hydrogen pipeline system, which isn't something we've heard necessarily from other hydrogen hubs around the world to be able to develop, to deliver a blend of up to 100% green hydrogen um, and would be able to displace around 25% of the country, the company's entire natural gas capacity. So it is really readying itself for a transition towards hydrogen. The interesting thing as well, so we've, we've seen also this week a, a bid from Apex Clean Energy for a gigawatt scale, gigawatt scale green hydrogen hub in Texas. Um, but we're also continu continuing to see Joe Manchin, who is still really holding the Build Back Better bill somewhat at ransom. We've seen him really hoping to develop a blue hydrogen hub in his own state of, of West Virginia. So that is going to be interesting to see whether or not he gets his own way to get the actual bill passed, because this bill really is going to be crucial to the development of hydrogen in the US. I mean, the key part of it really is these debts and tax credits, which as many people have written over the past months, will already make green hydrogen cost competitive with grey hydrogen. Well, so the mention here is ruining the whole American economy in one, one step. If he manages to get his way on that, he's like, he's, he's being, his head is in the sand as much as Donald Trump's. He'll be trying to produce blue hydrogen, probably from coal. Uh, I mean, the, the, well, certainly from natural gas, and and trying to make it economic and saying, oh, you can't make pass this law without me. You can't make um, green hydrogen have a financial edge over blue hydrogen, killing the whole Democrat agenda. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm, I think you're right in in saying that it could be hydrogen produced from coal with some speculative attempt at carbon capture, um, which would be woeful in terms of. The US fight against climate change 
Um, obviously, there's been. It would also be woeful in terms of energy on the on the global markets. He assumes he can carry on making using coal and natural gas to make poison uh, to poison his own people to export it to Europe, who's after all only buying it from Russia anyway. To to make us all continue to be addicted to gas, and and what yeah. that what that leads to really is when everyone gets off the hook on gas, America's economy is 50 years behind everyone's. Yeah, so I, I think there's a key there's a key decision to be made here, uh, and really it all lies in the hands of Jennifer Granholm, the US Energy Secretary. Um, she has the, basically has the call on what level of CO2 can be put, released from these projects that can be deemed as clean hydrogen, and what is included within the scope of the, of the measurement of these emissions. So obviously the, the key emissions from blue hydrogen especially are the upstream emissions. Um, so assuming that you can, they'll say, oh yeah, we can uh, capture sort of 85 to 90% of the CO2 from the project, which only just makes blue hydrogen acceptable below the sort of two kilograms of CO2 per kilogram of hydrogen threshold that we're expecting to see. But it's whether or not it includes the, the upstream methane emissions, which uh, can be as high as 10 kilograms of CO2 per kilogram of hydrogen. Whether or not those can be included within that within that scheme uh, would completely rule out blue hydrogen, I think. So, I mean, we've already done the numbers. We know that this, um, if Grantham, Grantham did anything other than stick to a green agenda, the people that voted in the Democrats would be looking for a new party at the midterms completely. So uh, she's tied to her stated agenda there has to be green it will be um but whether that means that every other bill this government tries to put through is stymied by its rogue senator that's that's just uh, it's just a shame that they didn't get one more um senate place it's going to ruin the american economy it's not it's it, it won't turn the tide of history it'll only ruin the american economy yeah absolutely i mean the iea released a very timely report this week saying that the the energy sector methane levels are actually 70% higher than the official figures being released. And a lot of that is coming from, from burning cap and burning coal. So, well, they've committed to, to, to addressing methane uh, leakage at yes, exactly. COP26. How that's going to be forced through and, and policed is anybody's business. But the truth is, it's going to have a cost. If you, It's not an either or. You, know, you either have a carbon tax or you uh, stop methane leakage or you have um, carbon capture. It's two of the, out of the three, and most likely three out of three, that, that you're going to end up paying for. Carbon capture, carbon uh, emissions that are continuing, and uh, an abatement in the upstream emissions. No one in the fossil fuel industry can afford to do all that. No one. So, so I have a question, which is, um... Why, why is blue hydrogen so bad? Is it because it occupies the space that should be taken by green hydrogen and then it isn't, it's not conveniently upgradable to green? So blue hydrogen has so many shortcomings that we can talk about. Um, the first, obviously, blue hydrogen really is never going to be um, in practice cheaper than grey hydrogen. Obviously, you're going to have to install an additional layer of infrastructure on top of grey hydrogen that's going to make it more expensive. Obviously, that will somewhat be offset by the cost of carbon pricing, but you're certainly not going to see prices fall below the $2 per kilogram. I think in terms of our modeling, we've got it globally at around sort of $3.5 kilograms, dollars per kilogram as an absolute minimum uh, through to 2050. The biggest issue is 
the fact that firstly it can only even if carbon capture technologies can get up to speed and realistically they're only capturing up to sort of 20 percent of project level co2 at the moment if they, even if they can scale up to 85 to 90 percent which is the maximum theoretical amount of co2 they can capture they're still producing a significant level of co2 there's more co2 than hydrogen that they're actually producing but the big thing is these upstream methane emissions 10 kilograms of co2 equivalent coming from methane in the infrastructure that obviously you can you can address that somewhat but because it's such a wide network of infrastructure for natural gas the methane emissions are very hard to tackle on a on a broad level so and they've gone up i mean the, the key thing is under donald trump as president of the united states all of the oil companies thought it was it was a general permission to just release as much methane as they cared to and not worry about it and so and they're very cynical about this if it suited their their economic delivery of gas they they just let the methane go they let, they just vented it or they burnt it releasing carbon dioxide so that that doubled in in america and then the number of people who could see it uh, increased dramatically when pe- we started putting filtered cameras on satellites that can see the methane and started reporting on it. So did they immediately, oil companies, go out and say, oh, you can see my methane leakage, I'll stop it then. No, they just carried on. So uh, these are very cynical companies who, who, uh, who have no belief in global warming, right to the very top. If you're going to trust them producing your hydrogen, it's just going to be another way of polluting the planet. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and that's case in point in what Joe Manchin is doing. He's trying to use this hydrogen opportunity to keep his coal interests and his gas interests alive for as long as possible. Um, obviously, he, he, he must know himself that that can't be more than 10 years, but he's thinking, oh, well, in 10 years, I'll, I'll be wanting to be retired in, in my, my massive house in West Virginia. So he'll be um, very much looking to maximise the returns that he can have on his existing investment. Um, he's got a huge amount of money invested in coal um, at the moment, so uh, it's no surprise that this is what he's pushing for. So, would it be worse to have a blue hydrogen supporting Build Back Better bill than no bill at all? Yeah. Yes, I think it would be. If you're looking at um, burning blue hydrogen, these the emission equivalent emissions are worse than burning gas. They're worse than burning coal, and it just puts the US on the wrong pathway. And I think if you're going down. A hydrogen economy based on blue hydrogen is hard to switch across to to green hydrogen if you just start it um, on the right track from the start. So there isn't much of a silver lining of enabling green hydrogen at all then? The, the yeah. only silver lining it builds confidence in the manufacturers of fuel cell trucks and of um, hydrogen-based production methods because they can crack on and actually start investing in, in green production methods. But for those to be green production methods, it needs to be green hydrogen, it can't be blue. And anyway, we've seen this before so many times. The industry starts by saying, oh, hydrogen, you can't afford to do it. It's, it's uneconomic. And within one or two or three or four years, it's crushed all those problems. They've come along, they've addressed them, and they've smashed the price curve. Solar is the cheapest form of energy in the world. People wanted to drop support for solar 20 years ago because it could never be cheap. Well, it didn't take very long for that to overcome that resistance. Green hydrogen is going to kill blue hydrogen within five years, economically, without any help for anybody. The, uh, in which case, everyone says, oh, well, why don't you just allow blue hydrogen? Because people that own the infrastructure for distributing 
the blue hydrogen will automatically become the gas companies, the oil companies, who will then impose some kind of cost on green hydrogen that will make it impossible. For anybody, for anybody who's not a client out there listening to this podcast, all of these stories are available at uh, rethinkresearch.biz. Uh, click the uh, energy button and read the weekly analysis. That's completely free of charge. The value in our organization is in the forecast and data section. Click that and look at some of the, uh, the products we've got available, um, our um, hydrogen forecast, our green steel forecast, our forecasts on solar and on wind. Uh, and that's, um, that's to tempt you to subscribe to our services that are brought to you by the analysts you've been listening today. Thank you very much. We'll be back next week with another uh, copy of the Rethink Energy podcast.